You're listening to the Cantor Fitzgerald Investor Podcast. Thank you very much for that, Connor. As I said at the beginning, there will be a chance to ask a couple of questions later on this evening, and you can talk to Connor about those projects and what's underway. I suppose uh, at the very beginning of the evening, Ronan mentioned events on what's happening in the UK across the water right now, events on Twitter with Donald Trump. But to bring together those themes and many other things that are happening to the global economy right now and how they impact on investment decisions and choices, I couldn't think of a better guest to try and tell us or try and guess what's telling us what's happening in London right now, but also to tell us about what's happening in the world and not just in Washington, D.C. and London. Please welcome on the stage former Taoiseach John Bruton. Thank you very much. I was delighted to see the investment that's taking place in Navan, I have to say, having walked the streets of Navan for 35 years. Um, well, looking at where we are today, uh, it looks as if we're going to have a pretty hard Brexit. Uh, the, the big variable between May's deal and Johnson's deal is that Johnson is saying that he is going to difference, uh, have different labour, uh, environmental and product standards to the ones that apply in the European Union. That means two things. It means, first of all, that it will be very difficult to get a trade deal with the European Union that doesn't contain substantial tariffs. Because if there's a possibility that uh, the UK is going to undercut quality standards in goods and thereby obtain advantage or labour standards or environmental standards and thereby obtain cost advantages vis-a-vis -vis the European Union. The only way the European Union will have of compensating for that would be through tariffs. Obviously, tariffs are going to be particularly high in the area of agriculture and food products. Uh, and that's something that has not been resolved yet and was going to be difficult anyway in the trade negotiation, uh, particularly as the UK may wish to make deals with other countries which will uh, be competitors of the European Union as far as food products are concerned. So it means a very difficult trade negotiation and the possibility of considerable tariffs. The other thing that it means in light of the way in which the latest deal has been structured, given that the tariffs will be collected, the VAT will be collected, and the standards will be invigilated as far as EU qualification for EU standards is concerned. That will all be done on the Irish Sea between uh, Northern Ireland and Britain. That means that the border, so to speak, uh, the barrier, so to speak, between Northern Ireland and the rest of the Union of the United Kingdom is going to be much greater as a result of the choice that Johnson has made to go for divergence of standards and consequently more, uh, more controls. In a sense, politically speaking, Boris Johnson had to make a choice. The choice was between the European uh, Research Group in his own party, the hardline Brexiteers in his own party, and the Democratic Unionist Party. If he wanted to satisfy the Democratic Unionist Party, he would not have agreed to 
either to highly divergent standards and uh, divergence in standards or to having to have tariffs on the Irish Sea. Instead, he has gone for the harder Brexit in order to keep the European Research Group happy. Uh, it's a choice that has obviously major implications for the morale of the unionist community in Northern Ireland. Uh, it's going to have considerable medium-term implications for us. We will be on this side of the border having to speak for Northern Ireland in EU negotiations because Britain will be out and yet EU standards will apply in Northern Ireland. And I think this is going to potentially uh, create quite a measure of instability and unpredictability in the politics of Northern Ireland and indeed in the politics of the whole island. As far as the hard Brexit itself is concerned and the effect that that will have in Ireland, I think it will accentuate existing divergences. We see in every country, uh, in, in, indeed in the world almost, in elections now, different election trends in rural areas and in the metropolitan areas. Already in the last general election in Ireland, you saw Fine Gael doing relatively well in, in basically in the area around Dublin and doing badly elsewhere. You see, you saw that in the Hungarian elections recently where uh, Viktor Orban lost ground in Budapest and a few major cities, but in the, or in the rural areas he did well. You saw it in Finland where in Helsinki, the moderate parties did well, but in rural Finland, the true Finns and the other groups that are very radical nationalists, they did well in the rural areas. This division uh, is already there and it's going to be, in the case of Ireland, accentuated by Brexit. That's all I propose to say about Brexit, uh, but obviously I'm happy to talk about it afterwards. What I'd like to um, refer to now is the world that we face after Brexit. I think the world is much more unpredictable now than it was 10 years ago. The area of easy decisions, if decisions were ever easy, is over. Let us not forget that in the recent past was the first occasion where a European country was successfully invaded by its neighbour and some of its territory taken away. Notwithstanding the fact that 10 years previously the territorial integrity of that country had been guaranteed by the invader, by the United States, and by the United Kingdom and France. And yet, Russia got away with taking Crimea from Ukraine. That's a major landmark in European history, and it means that it's one of the reasons why we're going to have to pay much more attention to defence and expenditure on defence in, 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 in the near future. We've also seen widespread, and this has already been referred to by Ronan, widespread interference in elections uh, and, the democratic and democratic processes of Western countries by authoritarian regimes. Voting software has been infected. Campaigns have been hacked. National rules for election spending are impossible to enforce now because they can be circumvented through social media. The United States has created serious doubt about its commitment to European defence and it has walked away from its uh, support for its allies, the Kurds. Uh, and we also uh, see that the United States is undermining the rules-based international trading order. 
because of its unwillingness to allow the appointment of replacement judges to the appellate court of the World Trade Organization. The World Trade Organization is the only rule-based institution that up to now had an enforcement mechanism that the United States was part of. And they're now effectively withdrawing themselves from the enforcement mechanism. They're still in the WTO, but the enforcement mechanism is being attenuated. And this is being done because of growing geopolitical rivalry between the United States and China. It's all about the rise of China. We're moving away from a unipolar world to a bipolar world. Bipolar worlds are always more dangerous than unipolar worlds. And this is driven by the economic growth of China, to which reference was made already, by the fact that China is now spending more on R&D than is the United States. China is now spending more on its military than all the armies of Europe, apart from Russia, combined. China is now the, now the leader in 5G communications. China now, Chinese companies now own European brands like Volvo and Pirelli. It has bought the two biggest suppliers of robots to the German car industry. They are now Chinese-owned companies. Uh, and the United States clearly sees China as a rival, and it is using trade policy to curb the growth of China, to curb the technological growth and improvement of China. It probably won't succeed in that. The United States have some valid points about unfair competition on the part of China in the matter of it not being entitled to developing country status in the WTO at this stage, which gives it certain concessions. It should be treated as a developed country. That would be progress. But even if that's achieved, the fact is that what lies behind the trade war is geopolitical and ultimately military rivalry in respect of the Pacific. The United States, remember, entered the Second World War because it was attacked in the Pacific. It didn't enter the World War to save France or to save Britain because it was attacked in the Pacific. The United States is very concerned about its position and the Pacific Rim vis-a-vis -vis China, and that's influencing its trade policy. It made a big mistake, I think, in abandoning the uh, global trade agreement that it had for the Pacific countries, excluding China. One of the first things Donald Trump did was withdraw from that, thereby reducing uh, the US capacity to compete effectively with China, and instead he's now moving into uh, this area of uh, using the trade weapon to curb the growth of China, and I fear that will not be successful. However, we in the European Union, and we are going to, I think, as a nation, have to take more interest in the way the European Union works than we've been doing up to now, uh, because Britain is no longer there. We'll have to do much more for ourselves and with allies than uh, we would have done when Britain was there. We're going to be more isolated. We're going to be essentially a frontier nation. We're going to be on the frontier between one, the European Union on the one hand and indeed a Britain that is probably heading towards some sort of 
trade and political pact with the United States, perhaps joining the North American Free Trade Agreement or something of that nature. That's some of the thinking in the White House is that, that it will basically bring uh, the United Kingdom into their sphere. And there will be definitely conflicts of one kind or another between the European Union side and the United States slash UK. And we're going to be on the frontier. Being on a frontier is never comfortable. Uh, ask the Serbs. Uh, you know, all those countries along frontiers, the great, the great fault lines of European politics have had a, quite a an, an uncomfortable time going back to the 17th century and before. Turning now, if I may, to the European Union, our European Union, I'd like to say a few things. First of all, we've got to acknowledge that Brexit is a major setback for Europe. Yes, the European Union has been able to maintain its unity and stability in the negotiation, which is in stark contrast to the way in which the divorce has affected politics in Britain. But that does not take away from the fact that when Brexit happens, we will be losing a relatively young, relatively prosperous, a diverse and creative member state. Europe will be poorer as a result of Britain leaving in every sense. The European Union's strategic weight in the world will be reduced and indeed Brexit will be exploited by those who do not wish the European Union well and Donald Trump is most certainly one of those. There is also a risk that we face problems internally because essentially Europe is an elderly continent. Uh, and as somebody who's entering into that category myself, elderly people tend to be cautious, uh, risk averse, and you know, perhaps don't have a long-term vision, don't have the same sense of self-confidence that young people have. And that will infect our politics. Defensive politics is what an elderly population will tend to vote for, even though it's precisely not what they need. And I see mistakes already arising from this defensiveness in Europe. Two examples. One is the fact that most governments, including our own, have said they will not entertain any further amendments to the EU treaties. Well, even a tennis club has to change its rules from time to time or it will stagnate and lose members. The European Union has to be able to change its treaties. And if significant numbers of governments are saying no treaty changes because we're afraid it might fail in a referendum, that indicates an institution that's heading in the wrong direction towards stagnation. You only should look at the United States, a country where it has now become impossible for them to change their constitution, to see all the difficulties they can get into. But there are all sorts of unreformed aspects of the United States political arrangements that have caused so many difficulties, including a president being elected who didn't get a majority of the votes in the country at large. And we're heading in that direction. The other big success of Europe since the beginning of this century in particular has been the enlargement. Bringing in the countries from this East and Central Europe has, a, first of all, substantially increased the prosperity of those countries. 
has embedded democracy in those countries, albeit imperfect, and has created uh, an area of space and an area for markets for European Union products. And the prospect of joining the European Union has been enabling countries not yet in the European Union, such as Ukraine, such as North Macedonia, such as Montenegro, such as Serbia, to justify the taking of very unpopular decisions, to justify trying to reduce the power of oligarchs in order that they would qualify for EU membership. At the summit last week, the momentous decision was taken, supported by President Macron, who tends to want to present himself as a great European and somebody who has a vision for Europe. But he supported the decision to stop even the opening of negotiations with North Macedonia, even though that country changed its name and did all sorts of very difficult things in order to qualify to be allowed to open negotiations about possibly joining the European Union at some stage in the future. The Dutch, French and Danish governments vetoed that uh, last week. And that, I think, was a major setback in the, of, the, of the wrong kind in the European Union. We need to instead be much more confident in Europe. We need to recognise that the European single market is the envy of the world. It has added 8 to 9% to the GDP of all the countries in the European Union. But it's not complete. There are many more gains to be made from completing the European single market. For example, if we could complete the single market fully for goods, that could bring an addition 713 billion euros worth of money into the European Union. Completing the Economic and Monetary Union has been estimated would add about half that, 332 billion euros and completing the single digital market, 178 billion euros. Completing the European services market would also add substantially uh, to our wealth and our efficiency and to benefits to consumers. The European Union has the capacity to deal with exploitation of the consumer and exploitation of competitors by companies that are unduly large or monopolistic. It's been estimated that antitrust actions by the European Union have saved, in the last two years, uh, consumers between 30 and 50 billion euros worth in terms of benefits as a result of actions taken by the EU Competition Commissioner. These are real and substantial benefits. They are important things for, uh, the, for, for, to, for us to continue to accentuate. Now, if the European Union is to prosper, it needs to become more courageous, as I've said. It needs to become more visibly democratic. We have had European Parliament elections, direct elections of the European Parliament for the last 40 years. And yet, when people vote in the European Parliament elections, they're voting for an individual candidate based on their national reputation. They're not given an opportunity to vote in any form of European constituency where they can, so to speak, send Brussels a direct message about the sort of direction that they want the European Union to go. And in the absence of that, there isn't the strong sense of uh, 
involvement of the people of Europe with the European Union, which there needs to be if the European Union is to have legitimacy and to be able to deliver the benefits that it's capable of giving. But the European Union is a union of sovereign states. And for the European Union to be strong, the states have to be strong. And the democracies of the states themselves have to be strong. And there's a big difference across the European Union in the level of confidence that their populations have in their own national democracies. 72% of Swedes in a recent poll said that they were confident in Swedish democracy. 68% uh, of people in the Netherlands said they were confident in Dutch democracy. 61% of Poles were confident in Polish democracy. 65% of Germans confident in German democracy. But at the other end of the spectrum, only 32% of Spaniards, 32% of Italians, and 31% of British were confident in their own national democracy. So the problem of alienation is a problem as much of alienation of voters from their own states and their own national governments as it is alienation from the European Union. But you can't have one without the other. If you don't have confidence in your own democratic leaders going to Brussels on your behalf and making decisions, you won't have confidence in what comes from the European Union either. We need to both strengthen national democracy and European democracy if we're to achieve our full potential. And I think it is important that the European Union, if it is to be able to hold its place in the world between China on the one hand, the United States on the other, has genuine strategic autonomy. To do that, it probably does need to spend more on its own defence. At the moment, the European Union is defended inefficiently by 27 different militaries, which can't even cooperate with one another on technological grounds. Uh, it is not functioning in terms of its weight in the world. For example, preventing a major influx of refugees from the Middle East is something that we were leaving to the Americans. The Americans were blocking the Turks from invading northern Syria and creating a possible influx of Kurdish refugees to, to, to what would be Western Europe. Europe wasn't capable of doing anything. And when the Americans pulled out, the Turks attacked. And with consequences we cannot yet foresee. Migration is a major problem for Europe and we're not able adequately to deal with it. We don't have a European immigration policy. We don't have a capacity of, we don't have solidarity in regard to that. This country is not perfect either, as you can see from recent public events in Ukrard and Balnamor and places like that. So there are problems that have to be dealt with and we're not just going to obsess with Brexit. Uh, also, I think if Europe is to have strategic autonomy, and is not to find itself, for example, having to go along with the Americans in basically undermining the nuclear treaty with Iran, which had great potential benefits in reducing tension in the world, but we can't maintain our position because the United States, because dollar, the dollar is the only reserve, reserve currency, is able effectively to operate a sanctions regime to its wishes and we have to go along with it because people have to use the dollar and you see people being prosecuted in America 
even though they're not in America, because they their mo the money for some transaction that the Americans didn't like actually was routed through New York because the dollar was the only currency that they could be used for that. To get over that, we need to develop the European Banking Union. We need to develop a European Capital Markets Union. We need to have European rules that are common and interactive in respect of insolvency of companies and so, so on then we will have at least the financial clout in Europe and the financial capacity to use that clout to defend our interests. I think we in this country need to take an intelligent interest in all of these things. We can't leave this to the British anymore. We can't leave it to the Germans. We can't leave it to the French. We've got to understand it ourselves because it is our future that the European Union is responsible for defending and we must take a leading part in that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much, John, for that very passionate speech and defense of Europe. We have time for some questions. Our panel are going to come up on the stage. Uh, please, there's going to be roving microphones around if you want to ask a question for John or for Pramit or for, Co for Connor or for Pierce. Anything you'd like to ask, we can put through them. I might just start off the panel there. Just be, and I should also just point out, I'm sure many of you saw the alert on your phone. Boris Johnson has got the first stage of his withdrawal bill through. So some little miracles do happen in the Brexit saga. Um, if I can start off maybe with Pramit and maybe with Pierce, when you hear John speaking about Brexit challenges, rise of China and the tr tension with Donald Trump over trade, as people who monitor the markets every minute of every day, the volatility it causes, how do you manage it? What do you say to investors when they say to you, I see these things in the news, I am worried, what do I do? You have to <clears throat> try and take advantage of opportunities as they come. So try and figure out what's priced into market and what's not. So if we look over the last two to three weeks as we've moved towards some kind of Brexit deal, whether we like it or not, it's, it's seeing some kind of certainty come through and you can see a lot of, uh, it's, it's, it's not rocket science, you just have to be, have a take a bit of risk. You could have bought, say, a company like British Land, which we recommend to a lot of our customers, uh, gosh, about a month ago, six, uh, end of August, I wrote about it. It was trading at five pounds and today it's 20% higher, simply because people are a bit more certain about what might happen there and then the property prices, the, the discount has narrowed completely. So, but you'd have, you know, you would have said that was quite a risky bet maybe two months ago, but what we would have said is a, that was a, a very hard Brexit has already been priced in. You're buying a, a, a very high quality company with very good assets uh, at a 50% discount to its assets. So there is a good chance. Pierce, many people will say, you know, what do, do I sit on my hands? Do I wait it, wait it out? Pramit has just given the example of acting. You know, at a macro level, what do, you, what do you advise clients to do? No, I mean, as an active manager, we embrace volatility. There's nothing worse than steady, boring, trending markets because you need volatility in order to uh, capture those opportunities, as Pramit said, when they present themselves. We'll take a few questions. There is a microphone if you want to put your hands up. You can get, we have a question over there, gentlemen. The third row, put your hand up. Might just state your name, please, as well. Uh, Dennis Jennings. Um, thank you for the, the speeches. I'm curious as to your views collectively, but particularly uh, uh, you, John Bluton, on the risk of a trade war becoming 
a real war. There's an enduring myth that uh, Japan attacked the US in Pearl Harbor, Harbor as the start of the Second World War for, for America. But in fact, a year earlier, the US had declared an oil embargo on Japan, which if it put in place would have destroyed their economy. Japan had no choice but to beat that oil embargo from, from a, an economic perspective. So the, the Second World War from, from in the Pacific was stimulated by a trade war. What are the risks now? Uh, I think they are, in the medium term, quite significant. Um, China is developing their military very quickly. Um, however, China has relatively few territorial ambitions other than Taiwan and you know, getting, getting control of its own, own space. Uh, and indeed, the, the South China Sea and having control of that, it, does, it doesn't wish to invade Vietnam or invade you know, Korea or anything like that. Um, but I agree with, fully with your historical uh, parallel there in explaining what happened. Uh, I, I, I do think um, that, as well, as I said, the trade policy on the part of the United States is motivated by trying to put a limit on Chinese power in order that China will remain too weak to contemplate doing anything and that America will remain uh, on top. That's going to be very difficult given the level of investment uh, in technology in China and given that in some areas of technology, China is now ahead of the United States. So it is going to, this is, is going to be an increasingly uh, threatening scenario, but I don't think it's imminent. Thank you very much for that, John. Before we go back to the floor, I might just ask a question for anybody on the panel who wants to answer. If we do get a Brexit deal over the line in the next couple of weeks, and obviously we enter into transition period, but what happens to financial markets on the back of that? Yeah, well, I think uh, financial markets have already priced out a lot of the, the risks of a hard Brexit or a no-deal Brexit at the end of this month. The worry, I suppose, is that we've been three and a half years now getting towards this Brexit deal, but this isn't the end of it. This is only the beginning in that they now have to negotiate a free trade agreement with the European Union. And it's going to be very difficult if they're saying they're going to have very different standards um, because they want to do a trade deal with the US or they want to do trade deals with other countries. Um, so the initial reaction of markets would obviously be to take, a, take it in a positive light but I think you need to look at what does this deal actually mean? And if there's no free trade agreement by the end of the year, does that mean that they effectively get the hard Brexit then? Uh, just keeping on that point, and maybe for a question for John Bruton from me, looking at the prospect of trade talks taking place in the next year if we get the deal, how easy or how difficult is it to conclude a free trade agreement with Europe? Is it possible to do it in the space of 12 months? No. Uh, definitely not. Uh, I, 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 the Canada deal, as you all know, took six years, um, and it was a relatively simple deal between a European Union, which is quite distant from, from Canada. With the United Kingdom, uh, you're going to have um, much more, many more issues to be negotiated about. You're going to have arguments about very emotional questions like fishing rights and fishing exports. You're going, agricultural issues are going to be to the fore. Uh, and you're going to have, of course, countries um, using basically threats 
threats to be more difficult on this issue unless they get their way on that issue. And you know, ca calculating uh, how to handle that is going to be extremely difficult. Uh, it has been said that Britain lacks um, people with trade negotiation expertise because that's been delegated for so long to the European uh, Union trade negotiators. So if you have, you know, people who are learning on the job, so to speak, doing the negotiation on behalf of one party, th there are lots of potential unintended difficulties that could arise. How do you deal with somebody like Boris Johnson in negotiations? The DUP might be able to tell us how now. Well, I, I, I have no idea, really. I, I, see, I think Leo Varadkar seems to have done a pretty good job uh, um, in, in drawing him out, in getting him to, to make a move, which was, is a very substantial move. And it's a move that will, I think, cause difficulties for the Conservative Party in its relationship with the DUP for the rest of time. Uh, I think the union is not going to be the same ever again as a result of that decision. Uh, so um, I understand from speaking to the current Taoiseach that um, he did find uh, Boris Johnson somebody whom you could speak to. There was a sense that you know, he responded to what you said and there was sort of a genuine interchange Whereas with the previous British Prime Minister, although she was pursuing a policy that was actually a better policy from our point of view, um, she never departed from her speaking line, so to speak. There was a, it was, you know, having a private meeting with her was exactly the same as listening to her at a press conference. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm told. <laughs> If you, have, if you have a question, please do raise your hand. We'll get a microphone to you. Do we have any more from the floor? Or we could have, yep, in the second row there. You may as well wait for it. Thank you. It seems quite likely that within the foreseeable future, there will be another independence referendum in Scotland and that that will quite possibly be carried. What do you think are the implications for Ireland, North and South? of such an eventuality. John, my phone me to take that. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm sceptical about uh, will the Scots decide uh, on independence. They have a number of problems that they would have to resolve before they could do so. First of all, they'd have to decide what currency they're going to use. Um, and that's not necessarily going to be all that easy, as you remember. The pound was using the pound wasn't something that uh, was made easy for them uh, as a deterrent to independence the last time. If they decide that they're going quickly to join the European Union, because I think Scotland is an even smaller country than the UK, it will need to be in a trade block if it is to uh, prosper. It has to be in some trade block. If it decides it's going to apply to join the European Union, and there will, I think, be tariffs to be collected between Britain and the European Union, then Scotland would have to introduce customs posts in Berwick-on-Tweed and Carlisle and places like that, and vice versa. Now, admittedly, that border you know, is easier to police than our border, which is 300 miles long. That border is, I don't know what length it is, probably 60 or 70 miles. But the idea of, of, of customs between uh, Scotland and England is 
quite a big ask, I think, for Scottish voters to, to give an affirmative to. On the other hand, like, they do feel that their interests have not been taken into account. I mean, that the union is a union for the benefit of one of the four nations, and the issue, the concerns of the other three are not getting attention. That's obviously, in the long run, not a viable arrangement. Thank you very much for that answer. Any more questions on the floor out there? I see a hand there, just in the... Over there, thank you. David Doran. Uh, a number of speakers referred to low or negative interest rates and the intervention of central banks uh, to try to work around that. I'm just wondering, what are the implications for uh, economies as a result of that internationally and for banks and... Uh, businesses ultimately and, and, and the people within those economies? Yeah, well, I mean, the reason interest rates are negative is typically when you get an economic downturn, the central bank cuts rates and it cuts rates sufficiently to boost the economy again and they got to the zero lower band. So you ended up with negative interest rates in Europe in a, to a large extent because monetary policy cannot do all of the heavy lifting. And this is what the ECB president Draghi has been saying for quite some years that you need fiscal policy to try to do some of the heavy lifting. And when you're at the zero lower bound in terms of interest rates, uh, you get the paradox of thrift. In, terms of econo in economic terms, it means that to save is folly. And that's what the, I think one of the biggest problems with Europe is that the country that can most afford to, save, to spend money refuses to do so, even though they're getting paid by the market to do it. And you need, Europe needs a big fiscal boost. And that, for that reason, monetary policy has been, or interest rates have been set to negative levels. And it's, it's not good for the banks. I mean, European banks pay the European Central Bank about seven or eight billion euro a year in negative interest costs, whereas US banks receive about 40 billion a year. And obviously the US banking system is much bigger than the European banking system, but it's a huge swing in terms of what US banks receive from their central bank in terms of interest rates on their deposits with the central bank, whereas European banks are forced to pay 8 billion euro a year um, every year in terms of negative interest rates. And there seems to be no end in sight in terms of when the ECB might move off negative interest rates. Pierce, I might just interject there. What are you looking for towards next year? What will be the big theme for markets? Will it be a macroeconomic event or will it be politics either, either on the far side of the Atlantic or in Europe? I think, unfortunately, politics is still going to be a factor because even if Boris Johnson does get his Brexit deal through, it's going to be about the free trade agreement. Um, I know you said he passed, got the first, uh, first reading passed, but there's going to be so many amendments tacked onto this that it might, the risk is it might become unrecognisable. I think the election in the US is going to be very important next year if Elizabeth Warren gets the, gets the nomination. Um, she's against big banks, she's against big tech, she's against big healthcare companies. So um, there's going to, it's going to be quite a contentious election in the US next year. Um, and add to that, you have the trade war that's still rumbling on. Just any more questions from the floor? Or I, I might just interject with one or two more for the panel here. Anybody else want to get your, stick your hand up if you have a question there? Just maybe turning it back to Ireland a bit. And Connor, you know, you hear there talking about interest rates lower for longer. You must be uh, loving that type of noise. Uh. Well, no, it, 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 it's challenging. I mean, it's driving down rates in alternative structures. I mean, we've looked at things in the past with returns in 15% per annum. Uh, so the low interest rate on, on, a, on a global scale is pulling down 
return expectations across across the various sectors. Um, the project we're looking at the moment, we like that there, there is there is uh, a yield there, but you know we, we expect to see that yield tighten over the next 12, 24, 36 months. And just maybe to wrap it up, Pramit, you hear John talking about global events, you hear Pierce as well looking at the outlook for markets. Uh, are you still happy to say that boring companies can do well in these volatile and difficult times? Well, I think looking out uh, 15 months, we're going to have, continue to have a lot of volatility. I can see a 7 or 8, 9% correction in markets for, I don't know what the reason will be, some of them mentioned by, by Pierce. Uh, clearly, uh, there's some kind of decline going on globally at the moment, but I think uh, the companies we invest in, they just, as I said, they, they'll just keep producing that. And, and be, if you get a 7 or 8% correction in these shares, it's a great buying opportunity. Okay. Well, I think on that note, a great buying opportunity, Pramit recommends. So thank you very much to Pramit, Connor, Pierce, and John Bruton. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your time this evening. This recording does not constitute personal recommendations nor provide the sole basis for any evaluation for the securities discussed. Specific advice should always be sought prior to investment based on the particular circumstances of individual investors. Past performance is not a reliable guide to future performance. The value of your investment may go down as well as up. Cantor Fitzgerald and Merion Investment Managers are regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Disclosures relating to our research and our terms and conditions can be found on our website at canterfitzgerald.ie.